There's a story about a man who was born blind, never saw a day in his life for 50 years. For 50 years, he had his world described to him what things looked like, what people's faces looked like. But having never seen at all in the first place, how could he possibly understand when someone was describing a bright blue sky with wisps of white cloud? You couldn't possibly imagine that scene the way you and I imagine it. How could you conceive of a field of wildflowers or a sunset over the San Juan Islands if you had no concept of shape or color or texture or depth of field? And, and what would people's faces look like? The people that you grew up with, your parents, those whose faces you touched but you could never see. After 50 years of life like this, medicine had progressed to a point where this man became, became eligible for a, a, a experimental surgery. He had the surgery and after days of recovery, the bandages were taken off. The glorious unveiling and very unexpected disappointment and confusion. Nothing the man had imagined things would look like meshed reality. Eventually, he took to closing himself in his house, shutting the, the, the drapes and staying in a central room. And within a few years, he died. Accepting reality is the basic fundamental ingredient to survival. I've shared before, but even in outdoor survival, you can things like having a compass or knowing how to hunt and fish, those are all important things. But fundamentally, the most important thing is to be able to, if you're lost, recognize that you're lost and deal with that new reality. Because people that don't think they're lost and think that the way home is just over that ridge or just over the next ridge or just over the next ridge, expend all of their energy going in the wrong direction. Now we are currently walking through Matthew's Gospel as a church and Matthew's Gospel takes us back in time to the life of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century AD. By the time Mary gave birth to Jesus around the year 6 BC, Israel hadn't had a bona fide prophet, hadn't had a live message from God for nearly 400 years. Like the blind man who had his world described to him, the people of Israel had a description of what their future might look like. From the prophets of old, they looked forward to the, for the day that God would return and dwell among them. They looked forward to the day He would send His Spirit to dwell among them, for the day that He would send His Messiah to rescue them. And there were many ways that those people over 400 years imagined that day to look like. One of the most popular images uh, of rescue was the Messiah who would be nationalistic. Someone who would be for Israel and against the other countries, mainly Rome. They imagined that this Messiah would be a military leader. And that he would be a spiritual leader. He would be a man who followed the law, the Torah, perfectly. Enter Jesus. Jesus came proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. He came preaching a message of repentance and reconciliation and rescue. Jesus came claiming to fulfill the law. Jesus was acting like the Messiah. He was acting like the servant of God. And at times he was acting like God himself. All as the prophets described. But one thing about Jesus is that he looked different than 400 years worth of interpretation 
led the people to, be, to believe in. So would the religious leaders, would the people accept the reality of Jesus or would they reject it? And what about you? And what about me? As we're confronted with the way that Jesus really is, not the way that we imagine Him to be. With that in mind, would you stand with me as we read tonight's, tonight's text from the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man saw and spoke. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But I... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Lord, what a challenging word. In many ways confusing. In many ways it feels dated. I thank you that your word is alive and active. I'm thankful for your ministry, Holy Spirit, that opens the word up and opens our hearts and minds up. We pray for your ministry, Holy Spirit, as we look at this word and, and, and hope that it transforms us into the image of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I know it's hot in here. If you just need to stand up, get in front of a fan, it's not going to distract me at all. I have three children. Doesn't, nothing, nothing bugs me. So, chapter 12 in Matthew's Gospel is appropriately called the controversy section. 
A couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I preached on a text where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, right? And the religious leaders were offended that Jesus couldn't... Why couldn't you just wait a day, man? I mean, couldn't you just heal the day before the Sabbath or wait 24 hours and heal him after the Sabbath? Why'd you have to go and break the law? They were angry that Jesus was breaking the law and in their minds, anyone who breaks the law of Torah could never be the Messiah. Well, it's really ironic, don't you think? I mean, the very one who gave the law in the first place is now standing in their midst and they're griping about it. But as I pointed out two weeks ago, what's even more interesting is the man's injury that Jesus healed. It says he had a withered hand. And as I pointed out, you're not going to probably find a withered hand in any medical journal. What is a withered hand? What kind of deal is that? Well, what's really fascinating is that Israel, uh, when they were rebellious and into idolatry, is God would often say things like, you're a withered vine, or your life is going to be withered up because of your rebellion against me. What if Jesus, healing this man with the withered hand, is saying, I'm coming to undo the curse, to, re- to take you out of exile that you've been in uh, with God? Could this represent God coming and healing the nation? So, in our text today, Jesus heals a man possessed by a demon who causes him to be blind and mute. I mean, what a horrible condition. A man possessed by a demon that won't let him see or talk. Depressive. But there's more to it than that. In more than one place, in the Psalms and the Prophets, we have a warning from God that those who go after idols will become like those idols. So listen to these words from Psalm 115. Speaking of idols, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. Hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Now from Isaiah 35. God is speaking through the prophet words of comfort to the people of Israel. He says, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. He will save you. Now listen to this. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth from the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. That's like to say Arabah. Jesus casting out a demon here is a double statement. There is a man, singular, who is possessed by a demon. He can't see, he can't talk. That's horrible. Jesus has compassion, heals the man. That is a wonderful deed in itself. But in light of what we know about what happens to a people when they worship idols, they become like them. And by the time the first century comes around, do you know what Jewish uh, rabbis would say about idols? That there's a demon behind them? Interesting. So now Jesus heals this man, casts out a demon who was blind and could not speak. He can now see and speak. Jesus is the one promised to set people free. Not free from Rome, as the population uh, expected, but free from the ultimate enemy. The Satan, or the accuser. The one who seeks to delude us, 
to make us question God's love for us and ultimately to destroy us. The crowds begin to pick up on what Jesus is doing. I mean, they've been with him now. They've seen, uh, they've seen him heal the man with the withered hand. They've now seen him cast out this demon. It's beginning to click, I believe, for them. And they say, could this be the son of David, the ancestor of the great king who slew Goliath on our behalf? The same man who also uh, kept Saul's demons at bay? The greatest king in our history? After all, the Messiah was expected to come through the line of David. But just as the people's eyes were being opened to Jesus' identity, the Pharisees were there in good order to shut them up again. We know from verse 14 in the same chapter that the Pharisees had conspired together, settled in their hearts to kill Jesus. Their hearts were hard against Him. They were threatened. They were threatened because the people are beginning to follow Jesus when they had been following this popular movement of the Pharisees. So they challenged Jesus, claiming that Jesus was not from God. They said that the only way that you're casting out these demons is by the power of the prince of demons himself. And they called him Beelzebul, which is kind of a slang term. It just means Lord of filth or Lord of the flies. I'm going to get to Jesus' response, but before I get to what he actually says, I want to point out the way he says it. Let's not forget that part of what Jesus is doing, part of what being a disciple is, is being recreated into his image. So if we're to be in the image of Jesus, watch how Jesus handles this situation. Jesus is direct. That's not, he's not a wimp. Like He's totally direct, but he's also... Uh, concerned about helping people see clearly rather than defending himself or rather than getting back at these people. I just want you to compare that to say even one of the great men of God, Elisha, who once is walking down the road and some kids are calling him baldy and he calls out a bear and eats him. And it's crazy. Like Jesus now, the son of God, could have, I don't know, what could he do? And I'd like called, I don't know, what would be a cool animal? Jaguars or something. I, that's kind of exotic. But I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't handle it like even uh, some of the other men of God. We just read that passage from uh, Elijah, like sending fire on these armies of 50. But Jesus is gentle. And then he gets to his argument. He, he points out their faulty logic. Listen, I mean, if the devil is about putting people in bondage, uh, and I'm setting them free. Like, that doesn't work out. It was basically undoing the devil's work. So, what's your point? Uh, second, if I'm doing this by the power of Beelzebul, how are your disciples doing it, Pharisees? Because they're casting out demons. It was pretty um, common in the first century to have exorcisms, even among the rabbis. And I think the point there is that God's power works in mysterious ways. And we should be real careful about labeling people's work as satanic just because we don't necessarily understand it. But third and most importantly, Jesus says that if he's casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come among us. This, is, this whole talk about binding the strong man, that would be the Satan or the accuser, the devil. 
It was believed in Jewish thought that when God returns to rescue the world, first of all, he would bind up Satan. He would, you know, it's a metaphorical image, but you would bind him up, and then he could plunder his house. And what is his house? It's you guys. It's me. It's rescuing us from bondage to Satan. So the idea is, if I'm doing this, and I'm deputizing my disciples, as we saw in chapter 10, to cast demons out of people, then the strong man is bound up. I'll explain it this way. Fourth of July, uh, for like 11 days before the Fourth of July, both my uh, Sophia and Stella, my older girls, were saying, when's the Fourth of July? When's it going to be here? When's it going to be here? And they're looking forward to it, not for the reasons I'm looking for it. Um, I'm looking forward to it to blow things up for one last year. <laughs> Fireworks are banned next year, unfortunately. But uh, they're looking forward to it because of the block party and because of the bike parade. So for them, when the bike parade gets here... It's the 4th of July. If the bike parade has arrived, then the 4th of July is upon you, right? If, if, if Jesus is doing these things in the power of the Spirit and the strong man is bound up, then guess what? Wait no longer. The kingdom is breaking in all around you. That's his point. If I'm doing these things, then guess what? All the stuff you're waiting for, you're missing it. I'm right here. Because the, where Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. Where did Jesus win this initial victory, by the way? Because at this point in the gospel, he's not gone to the cross yet. Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And there, three times, he's confronted by the devil, tempted. And where no man, woman, or child has ever stood up to the devil in that way, Jesus defeats him, the initial victory, uh, by not succumbing to that temptation. He's bound at that point. The decisive victory is, of course, the cross and the resurrection. It goes to follow, then, that if the kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus, then Jesus must be the king of the kingdom. And if he is the king and the savior, there's not another king and there's not another savior. He makes that very clear in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me or partake in my mission scatters. Did you hear that? That, by the way, is why we're committed to preaching through Scripture and not me jumping around in my favorite texts. Because that's not my favorite text. That's a difficult passage. Did you hear that? Jesus is saying, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not partaking in my mission and gathering... You're scattering. You're, you're not just new. There's no neutral. There's no, I'm just being broad-minded, kind of leaving my options open. Jesus says, ah. I don't necessarily like saying that, but I can't get around it. And neither can you. There it is. It's exclusive. There's no way around the fact that Jesus is Savior and there's not another one. Jesus is the focal point of God's mission to the world. He is the door. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who leads out of His humility, who died for us rather than using His position to exploit us. Jesus is the one who is gentle and humble in heart. He does not break a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He is the one. Now, it's at this point, I want to caution us for a moment. 
I don't know about you guys, but when you're listening to a sermon or when you're reading scripture, it's easy to be voyeuristic. Scripture is kind of a window back in time, thousands of years, and we're watching this scene unfold with Jesus and the Pharisees. We're going, go Jesus, great argument, and you know the crowds are there. But if you focus your eyes on a window, you can see through it, but it should also reflect your own reflection, right? And Scripture, I think, to be read properly, needs to be a mirror every bit as much as it is a window. Scripture, if we're reading properly, should read us just as much as we read it. Okay. I don't want to make the same mistake as the Pharisees, so I want to point something out. Mark chapter 9. Jesus, his disciples see these other guys casting out a demon. And they get all bent out of shape. They tell him to stop doing it. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he's not with their group. And Jesus says something fascinating. He says, There is no one who does these things in my name who will soon be able to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. He who is not against us is for us. He who is not with me is against me. Those don't seem to match up, do they? If you are not with me, you are against me. He who is not against us is for us. Those those don't sound uh, compatible. Here's the caution. Jesus is the only Savior, the only Lord, the only King. For you, for me, for each individual. That's the way to receive God. But the way people worship Him, the way people follow Him will look differently, won't it? There are no two churches that look exactly the same. We may prefer the way our own little local community does things, but that doesn't mean we have the monopoly on how to follow Jesus. So all those who put faith in Jesus first, who strive to trust and obey Him above all others, they are not against us. They are for us. Understand that nuance? Okay. I know we're dozing off. Everyone want to stand up or something and just shake it out? Okay, wake up. We now get to that section that most people struggle with, which is unfortunate, because I don't think it's the main point of this text at all. It's the unforgivable sin. I've been teaching the Bible for well over 11 years now, and it never fails that when we get to this passage, or its parallels in Mark or Luke, people obsess over this. Am I committing the unforgivable sin? What is it? Am I doing it? And why is it okay to blaspheme Jesus and my neighbor, but not the Holy Spirit? What's the deal with that? First of all, I'll give you the appropriate pastor's cliche that if you're concerned with whether or not you're committing the unforgivable sin, you are not committing the unforgivable sin. And it's a cliche because it's true. But what is it? What is this unforgivable sin? And I think in context is the only way to interpret this correctly. And in context, it's attributing the work... Listen. It's attributing the work of the Spirit... In Jesus to evil. Attributing the work of the Spirit of God in Jesus to evil. 
It's telling that most times when people read this section, they want to know, how do I avoid this unforgivable sin? What are the rules? What are the boundaries? How can I get mad at Jesus and swear at Him, but not at the Holy Spirit? The passage is not about what we can get away with. The passage is not about the rules. In fact, it's a severe mercy from Jesus. I want you to point something out. That Jesus knows about the Pharisees' conspiracy to kill him. He knows that. And he does not take the opportunity here to condemn them. He does not say you've committed the unforgivable sin. He's warning them that they're on the road to committing the unforgivable sin. How gracious is he? That's amazing to me. Like, you know, he could have just written them off. The unforgivable sin of attributing the work of the Spirit in Jesus to the evil one is a symptom, you guys. That's not the point of the message. It's not the point of the text. The real issue is the heart. If you have a heart hardened to Jesus, you can't receive Him. And you can't be forgiven if you reject the source of forgiveness in the first place. When I was in the Coast Guard, I was stationed in Port Angeles, Washington on a 110-foot patrol boat. We received a new crew member who had just transferred from Alabama. He was on a small boat station, and usually those boats run about a four-man crew or four-person crew. They responded to a capsized fishing vessel. Uh, a guy in the water, uh, their Coast Guard vessel goes over to rescue him, and one of the crew members on the Coast Guard boat was African-American. guy reaches out to rescue the man in the water. The man in the water, a white male, says, I ain't letting that figure it out. Touch me. Unbelievable. Right? And I, I, these guys, they could have probably just taken off and no one would have known, but one of the other crew members saved the guy. If Jesus is reaching out and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we harden our hearts to Him and say, We don't want anything to do with you, we don't believe that you are sent from God. It's like saying no to the hand that's reaching out to rescue you. That's the unforgivable sin. Not receiving forgiveness in the first place. If our hearts are corrupt, we are in trouble. If they're hard toward Jesus, we can't receive forgiveness. If we're hardened to the work of the Spirit in our lives, the Spirit of God reveals the way to Jesus, reveals the life that we can have in Jesus then we, we refuse forgiveness. We refuse salvation. We become unforgivable. Now, Jesus makes the point that the reason that the Pharisees were saying such horrible things about Him would be, was because their words reveal what's really going on on the inside. Words reveal character or reveal your heart. It's not a matter of controlling your speech. So, you know, you read this and you're like, oh, you're going to give an account for every careless word. So what do most of us do? Well, we better watch our tongues, right? And try and like, control our behavior and make sure we don't say the right, wrong things. Which, by the way, you know, it's always a good idea not to, to say stupid things, right? <laughs> but, but if we're simply managing our sin, trying to stuff down all the thoughts and feelings that we really have, we're not really transformed. We're not really changed. It's not a matter of... Following Jesus is not a matter of managing sin. Because eventually it's going to spill out. And 
puke on all of our relationships. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I know what I'm talking about. I don't know how many things I've flubbed up and ruined because of what the, the poison that can come out in me. You can't hide what's inside. You know, apple trees bear apples. That's what they do. Blueberry bushes don't grow apples. Cherries don't grow on strawberry plants. A transformed heart doesn't produce evil. So of all things that Jesus could talk about in this, in this context of the story, why does Jesus say we'll give account and be judged on our words? Because our words reveal what's really going on on the inside. Oh great, what do we do? Because if you're like me, you're sitting there like, dang, I know what's in my heart. Not real good. All the time. If we're honest, our hearts are corrupt, right? But I have very good news for us this evening. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of a time when God would come and dwell among his people and give us new hearts. Listen. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness, from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to obey my ordinances. The good news is that that day has come in Jesus. Now, many of you know that to be true. No matter how you feel a lot of the times, many of you know that to be true. You, at some point, have placed your faith in Jesus. You've experienced, at some point, that newness of life. You've experienced uh, at your conversion a goodness that you knew wasn't your own, a level of self-control you didn't have before. But maybe as you sit here today, you know, like, you know... That freshness has really waned in me. I'm really struggling. I'm really not where I was at at that point. And maybe you're experiencing a desire for a fresh start, for a fresh heart. Let me, t- let me just tell you about how, a little bit how this works. Jesus' offer at a new heart isn't magical. It's not like you say the right words, you pray the right pair, prayer, and then boom, it just like takes over and you don't sin anymore. It's relational. It's relational. You know, Jesus uses this metaphor that's very uh, poignant to me in connecting with him in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, and the vine has the roots in the ground, right? And you are the branches. Church, you are the branches. I'm a branch, you're a branch. I cannot receive the God life, the Jesus life, the new heart, if I'm separated from him. So I ask you, if you are longing for that new heart... How are you staying connected with Jesus? Just throw it out there. How are you staying connected with Jesus? Are you meditating on His Word on a regular basis? It's not to make you feel bad. I'm just saying that it's not magic. That it's relationship. And and when we draw on the things of God... Hey, guess what? We began to be filled with the Spirit of God. How's how's your relational prayer life with with Jesus? Are you inviting Him and the work of the Spirit into your life? When's the last time you prayed uh, over your work? Or how you're parenting? Or how your relationship's going? When's the last time you prayed besides being in church or in a small group? 
I'm just throwing that out there. Because that's a way that we stay connected to the vine. Are you engaged in the mission of gathering? Because Jesus says if we're not in the mission of gathering, we're scattering. We're not neutral. And I ask you, I mean, one of the ways to stay connected to the vine and receive this new heart is in service uh, to other people in, in Jesus' name. He is the vine. We are the branches. And some of you may be here this evening who have never received Jesus' offer at forgiveness and new life. I should have warned you before you came in, but it's hazardous to your health to hear the gospel over and over again. Because what happens is, when we don't respond, we build up a callus in our mind and our hearts. And I, I want to encourage you, if your heart is softened this evening by the work of the Spirit, don't waste that opportunity to respond. Don't waste, it's not, you don't have to come down here screaming with your hands up. Talk to me after the service. Take communion for the first time. Receive, uh, receive the, 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 the bread and the cup. Maybe that would be your first response to following Jesus right now. To receive a new heart that is open and responsive to the work of Jesus through the Spirit. I just want you to imagine that he, He's there with His arms open. Saying there's nothing you have done that can't be forgiven. The only thing that can't be forgiven is if you won't let me forgive you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for your graciousness. Not only for the things that you say, but in the way that you say them. For your tone, for your, uh, your obvious desire to, to show us truth and to, to show us love and to show us grace. Thank you for your gentleness, even in with these, uh, these men who were conspiring to kill you. I'm blown away. I am not man enough to do what you did. I hope you will make me that kind of man, though. I hope that, Lord, my hope is that you would transform our hearts. And I'm thankful for your servant Paul that reminds us that you are not done with the work you started. That each one of us may have started this journey uh, on the day of our conversion or when we were young, if we grew up in a church. It was started, but it's not done. And thank you, Lord, that you are ever about refining us and drawing us closer to you. Lord, I also confess that for many of us, all of us, reading the scripture can be difficult, it can be dry, it can be laborious. Praying, Lord... Sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes we don't experience its effectiveness. I pray for grace. I know this is asking a lot, but here we are. Uh, We ask big things of a big God. So I pray that you would even draw us. um, That you would give us a supernatural desire to desire you. Lord, I know that you have pulled out all the stops, even dying on a cross for us. Help us to receive you afresh today. Amen.